Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Inside Appalachia is 20 years old this month. We celebrate the anniversary by taking a look back with Inside Appalachia founders Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees. I'll tell you some dirt. You want to hear some dirt? Yeah, I can tell you. I'll tell you some dirt. I've been holding back on Giles on this for years. We also hear from people in Blackie, Kentucky, who dissolved their town to save their community. The ones of us who are left are, you know, the ones who are determined to save it and just not let this place we live dry up and blow away. And we visit West Virginia flat-picking guitar player Robin Kessinger and learn about his musical roots. You know, when he's showing me stuff, I mean, there, there always seems to be a story behind these tunes. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Do you remember where you were 20 years ago? America was coming up on the first anniversary of the September 11th attacks. George W. Bush was president, and Barry Bonds was hitting a 600th home run. And West Virginia Public Broadcasting was just launching a new show, Inside Appalachia, with Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees as hosts. So, Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees, thank you for coming on Inside Appalachia. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. Our, our listeners with West Virginia Public Broadcasting will know you all as broadcast legends, but uh, you're still going to be new to, to some of our listeners, especially in other states. Would you all mind uh, just to say who you are and introduce yourself? Uh, Beth, you go first. <laughs> uh, my name is Beth Voorhees. Uh, I had the pleasure of co-hosting Inside Appalachia with Giles Snyder. I worked for West Virginia Public Broadcasting for some 30-odd years. I retired about five years ago. And it's still gratifying that when people hear my voice or hear my name, they always say, oh, we miss you on the radio. <laughs> it's always nice to hear. <laughs> uh, I'm Tyler Snyder, of course, and uh, I worked at West Virginia Public uh, Broadcasting for something like 16 years. And uh, I've been at NPR as a newscaster for something on the order of 18 years now doing, uh, doing newscasts. So my biography in a nutshell. So we're here to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Inside Appalachia, which would not exist were it not for y'all. So paint me a picture of summer 2002. You know, where were you in your careers? I'm just kind of interested in your personal perspectives on, on how this show came together. Well, Giles created it. I was just the sidekick. <laughs> You're more than a sidekick, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess what I was thinking at the time was... That uh, the uh, if you look at the uh, map and uh, the transmitter placements that West Virginia Public Radio has, Parkersburg, uh, Huntington, Morgantown, Martinsburg, there's a, a lot of the transmitters are in uh, very close to the state border. So I, I, I kind of figured that we had a pretty large audience outside the state as well. And I, I thought a, uh, a news magazine that would appeal to the region uh, as opposed to just West Virginia, uh, would be a good thing to do. Of course, our news department, of course, is hyper-focused on West Virginia and always has been and, and always should be. But I thought that a, a regional news magazine would make sense for West Virginia public broadcasting and, and maybe try to get other stations there as well. When I got into journalism, it was the year before Inside Appalachia launched. And I got into it with the intention of like doing regional coverage. I interned at a Western news magazine called High Country News that kind of took a similar approach. And I wanted to bring that approach back to Appalachia, which is where I grew up. But you all were the innovators here. Tell me more about that regional approach. How did you think through shows? How did you think through what this show was going to be? Tell me about like shaping this show and like how, what framed your perspective? I think it was a, uh, I think it was a more of a, uh, at the t- more of a by the seat of your pants kind of operation <laughs> uh, and bare bones operation it was uh more about getting on the phone and uh calling the you know other stations around the region seeing what they were covering uh looking at uh what we had covered over the past week and seeing if that could be adapted uh make sense to air it on on a weekend show like inside <clears throat> appalachia and putting it together on a friday afternoon giles do you remember the executive director of public broadcasting at the time said okay you can do it but it can't cost any money 
Correct. Correct. <laughs> we we had we had a time getting approval for uh, to, to 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 do inside Appalachia from the uh, uh, the higher up muckety mucks. But you're right. I forgot about that, Beth. She, yeah. She did say it. Yeah. She did say it can't cost any any money. <laughs> and so we couldn't pay our stringers. We couldn't pay our reporters. They just did it because they were satisfied with what they were doing and wanted it to be heard by a larger audience. And they just kind of volunteered. So after you got the show off the ground, how did it develop over those early years? I'm going to let Beth answer that. Uh, I, I left in 2003. So I was only really on the air with Inside Appalachia, maybe a year, year and a half. Okay, yeah. Once uh, Giles went over and found fame at NPR at the Mothership in Washington, I tried a couple of co-hosts, but nothing really gelled. It wasn't really like Giles and I. So I just put together the show myself. I hosted it and edited it and kept in contact with our reporters, with our stations, did interviews, particularly for Inside Appalachia and just kind of kept it together. I always found editing the show, while it was long work, I always found it very satisfying because once it was done, you had a product that was really good. It really was regional. It had a lot of different stories. It had drama, it had humor, it had great music. I was introduced to some great Appalachian music when I was producing the show that I didn't know about. I think one of the key players um, in Inside Appalachia, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, Beth, was Scott Finn. Uh, I remember after I left, he called me. It, it had been a few years, and he called me up, was asking me questions, and had mentioned that he was bringing in a uh, a show doctor yeah. uh, to come in to help help shape the show and figure out where to go, where to take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. The show found some support under Scott. Yeah, I um, I stopped doing Inside Appalachia when I was still there. It was taken over by Roxy Todd and Jessica Lilly. I think when I moved from being news director to the executive producer of the West Virginia channel, which had gone on the air in 2017, something like that, I had to drop Inside Appalachia. So, and Cecilia, Cecilia Mason had it for a little while, and then it was turned over to Roxy Todd and Jessica Lilly. Where do you think about where the show's gone? I mean, it's been 20 years and Appalachia's changed a lot and so is so is media. So we as individuals, clearly, too. What are you, some of your thoughts on what's happened since you all launched it and where the show is today versus where it was when it was an idea? Well, I think it's a better show today than it was when it was uh, in its infancy. Uh, I'm proud of it I'm, you know, as, a, as a listener. So a fine ambassador of, of the, uh, you know, of the state and, uh, and the region. I, I, I think it's changed a lot since we started it back in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, it's more focused more on cultural issues. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know. It's just it's, it's, it's a better show than it was then. So kudos to you. Tell me some dirt. <laughs> I'll tell you some dirt. You want to hear some dirt? Yeah, I can tell I'll tell you, you some dirt. dirt. I've been holding back on Giles on this for years. Okay, so it's Friday morning. I come into the office. We always uh, record the introductions for Inside Appalachia. And this one Friday morning, Giles said, oh, I've already recorded the show. And I said, you recorded the show? Yeah, I I recorded the show. And I had to figure, Giles, that's what you sent in for your audition for NPR, and you didn't want them to hear me. Right? I, right. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you could have told me. Because it was uh, a real bad, it was, it was a big fight to get that thing on the air. Remember, remember James Muhammad wanted to call it Appalachia coming at you. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, that's not yeah. public radio enough. Giles Snyder and Beth Voorhees, thank you so much. You all are both legends and role models for me um, long before I came across Inside Appalachia, just through um, through my media consumption, but also um, my friends who worked at West Virginia Public Broadcasting spoke so highly of you both. So when I found out that you all were the inaugural host of Inside Appalachia, 
I was like, of course they were. Of course they made this show that's so awesome and fantastic. So thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. By the way, if you're wondering where the current staff of Inside Appalachia was 20 years ago, producer Bill Lynch had been on the job at West Virginia Public Broadcasting in Beckley for almost a year. He was one of the guys who put the up next captions on television shows. He says it was exactly as much fun as it sounds. Editor Kelly Libby was in college. She says she was writing bad poetry and learning how to play the banjo. Associate producer Alex Runyon was six years old. And I was just starting my journalism career in Western North Carolina, having returned to Appalachia after six years away. West Virginia musicians cast as long a shadow as guitarist Robin Kessinger. He's a national award-winning flat picker who still spends his days teaching kids and adults their first chords. That's no surprise. He comes from a legendary lineage of players and tunesmiths. Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Zach Harold has the story. If you only know one thing about the Newport Folk Festival, it's probably this. In 1965, folk wonder boy Bob Dylan took the stage with an all-electric band, and he changed the course of rock music forever, enraging some traditionalists in the process. Pete Seeger was apparently so disturbed by the noise that night that he threatened to cut the power with a hatchet. But I want to talk about a performance from the following year. At the 1966 festival, It was electric in a different way. No hatchets involved. The performance occurred during the festival's fiddle contest, which had legendary songwriter Jimmy Driftwood serving as the MC. Now the last uh, contestant is Clark Kessinger from St. Albans, West Virginia. Up to the mic steps a man in a sports coat and slacks. He's got a Colonel Sanders string tie around his neck. There's a fedora on his head, and a fiddle under his chin. I guess, Clark, you'll be about 71 your next birthday. I think so, yeah. 71 is next birthday. What are you going to play? Well, we got little Sally Ann Johnson. Sally Ann Johnson. Oh, that's nice. Clark dances behind the microphone, live as a man a quarter of his age. The surviving footage is grainy, but you can see this wicked smile on his face. He's smiling because this kind of music just makes you happy. But he's also smiling because he knows he might just be the best fiddle player on earth. And because just a few years before, he thought his days as a professional musician were over forever. Clark was born in 1896, and he started playing fiddle from a young age. His dad used to take him around to all the local honky-tonks, where he could earn more in tips in one night than his dad earned all week. Clark joined the Navy during World War I, and after he got out, he started entering these local fiddle contests. Those are competitions where different fiddlers get on stage and see who can play the fastest, or with the most feel, or with the most precision and Clark would take home top prize every single time. And then came the record deals. By the end of the 1920s, Clark was making best-selling records with his guitar-playing nephew, Luke. The duo was billed as the Kessinger Brothers, and their recording of Wednesday Night Waltz, that's what you're hearing right now, sold a million copies for Brunswick Records, making him one of the first country artists to achieve that kind of success. But then came the Great Depression, which put an end to the Kessinger brothers' recording career. Luke died a few years later. He was a hard drinker and had cirrhosis of the liver. Clark got married a few times and raised a bunch of kids. He still played fiddle for local dances, but paid the bills working as a house painter. Until, that is, the folk revival of the 1960s. (laughs) 
a new generation of fans discovered those old Kessinger Brothers recordings. An interest was so high that Clark was able to go back out on the road. In 1964, at the age of 68, he took on first place at the renowned Galax Fiddler Convention in Galax, Virginia. Two years later, he was at Newport. And two years after that, he played on stage at the Grand Ole Opry. And in between all those high-profile gigs, he was appearing at folk festivals all over the country. But this second chance at a music career ended almost as quickly as the first one. In 1971, Clark was at the mic at yet another competition when he suffered a severe stroke. He collapsed right there on stage. And though he survived, he could no longer play the fiddle. Yet despite this tragic setback, Clark was about to usher in the next chapter of the Kessinger family's musical legacy. I got to play with him one time. Not long before his stroke, Clark had some visitors to his St. Albans apartment. It was his nephew, Bob Kessinger, and Bob brought along his guitar-playing 15-year-old son, Robin. Bob was an accomplished mandolinist and had shown Robin his first chords on a guitar. That's how I started playing. He needed a guitar player, so... So I started playing guitar with him. Robin took to the instrument and started picking up songs anywhere he could, even from his Saturday morning cartoons. These really old cartoons, you hear a lot of fiddle tunes on there. Or the buzzards flying. It's Arkansas Traveler. Of course, they've... What do you want to do today? I don't know. <laughs> They're flying and having a conversation, flying real slow. It's a fast fiddle tune. He also learned songs from his dad's recordings of this renowned old fiddle player. Perhaps you've heard of him. Dad played uh, Clark Kessinger albums, and uh, he had reel-to-reel tapes. Uh, the music, I was indoctrinated that way. So I was familiar with a lot of the tunes from time I could remember. So when Clark starts sawing off these traditional tunes like Billy and Low Ground and Done Gone, Robin's right there with him, joining in on guitar. I backed him up. You know, I played the chords on there. He gave me a big compliment. He said, Bob, he sounds like Luke. But I, I knew who Luke was. Luke, remember, was Clark's nephew, the guitar player for the Kessinger Brothers. Robin's dad helped take care of Clark after his stroke, so Robin got to spend even more time with him. And though he couldn't play anymore, he still managed to pass down some of his musical knowledge to his great-nephew. He listened to all kinds of music. Uh, He used to listen. That's one of the things I learned from him was to listen to all kinds of music, and if you can use it and what you already know, you can make it better that way. Robin took what he learned from Clark and began winning some contests of his own. He picked up titles in Kentucky, Ohio, Georgia, and West Virginia. Just like Clark, he took home first prize at Galax, though on guitar, not fiddle. And in 1985, he won the National Flat Picking Championship in Winfield, Kansas. He's finished in the top five of that competition ten different times, more than any competitor in history. But for all his trophies, medals, and ribbons he's won through the years, there's one that means more to Robin than any of the others. It's distinct from all the other awards on a shelf because this one kind of looks like an Oscar. Sammy, or it's a Sammy, Sammy Award. Robin received this award in 2001 at the annual Pinch Reunion in Pinch, West Virginia. Sammy is short for Samaritan, as in Good Samaritan. They give the award to people who've made the world a better place. Uh, they give that it's like a lifetime of achievement for uh, sharing my music and teaching. See, not only is Robin one of the most decorated musicians in American folk music, he's also dedicated the last four decades of his life to helping budding musicians. Musicians like Bob Gilmore. You know, when you listen to Robin, I mean, he's a you know fantastic musician. And, and I told him, I'm, I'm not going to be the next... You know, Robin Kessinger, I'm going to try to be the best Bob Gilmore that I can be. Gilmore's son, Michael, took lessons from Robin for a while. 
He lost interest when sports and other things came along. But years down the line, Gilmore ran into Robin at a music festival. And I just went up to him just to say hello again. And and I asked him if he uh, was still giving lessons. And, and he said, yeah. He said, my son's name was, was Michael. He said, I'll, I'll take Michael back whenever. I said, well, Michael's not interested. I, I was talking about me. He began meeting with Robin every week at the Fret and Fiddle Guitar Shop in St. Albans, where Robin keeps a small upstairs studio. That was 10 years ago. Their relationship is so old now, they act less like teacher and student and more like two old buddies. And their time together looks more like a living room jam session than it does a proper music lesson. In fact, Robin schedules Bob as his last session of the day so they can just take as long as they want. So this, this, the girl I left behind, it has words. I don't know the words. But it has nothing to do with the girl I left behind. <laughs> I can dare, guarantee you that. It's, it's going to sound like da-da-da, A minor, da-da-da, back to G, ba-ba-ba, D, ba-da-dum, A minor, da-ba-da, D, for a resolve. Probably shown Bob more, tune, more family tunes and... And I just keep digging up stuff that I haven't played for years. He's, he's for, he forces my hand now. Well, and, you know, when he's showing me stuff, I mean, there, there always seems to be a story behind these tunes. He might tell you where, you know, where the song came from, what it's about, what was going on at the time, that sort of thing. So it's, you know, a little bit more than just the music, too, that, that you get with this, too. The music lives on in the Kessinger family, too. Robin taught his son to play guitar, and he's picked up some contest wins of his own. His name is Luke. For the Inside Appalachia Folkways Corps, I'm Zach Harold in St. Albans, West Virginia. Zach tells us that since he recorded the story, Robin Kessinger has been having some health issues. We sure do wish him the best. Feel better soon, Robin. There are so many amazing Appalachians out there making music right now, from old time to hip-hop. Who are you listening to right now? Who's someone you wish everyone knew about? Tell us. Write to us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Or find us at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook or at WV Public on Instagram. Coming up, will Shell's new petrochemical project near Pittsburgh bring people to the area, or will it drive them away? And so that's kind of why I'm like, I don't know if I want to be here, because it's just not part of the culture, respecting the land. That story and more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Americans routinely confront each other over politics, race, and religion. But there's been nothing like the Black Lives Matter marches that erupted across the U.S. in 2020. A lot of these protests were also attended by armed counter-protesters. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast, Us and Them, covered just such a march. The episode recently received a regional Edward R. Murrow Award. Host Trey Kay collaborated with reporter Chris Jones from 100 Days in Appalachia. 
Jones attended a Black Lives Matter march in Kingwood, West Virginia. The episode also included an interview with State Delegate Danielle Walker. She's the only black woman in the West Virginia State Legislature. Here's an excerpt. September 12, 2020 was one of many racial flashpoints across the country. There were guys with old bolt-action rifles with bayonets. There were guys with brand-new AR-15-style weapons. There were pistols. Chris Jones is an investigative reporter for 100 Days in Appalachia. He's a Marine Corps veteran who fought in Afghanistan. Later, he worked as a war correspondent there. Jones was in Kingwood the day of the march. I spent a lot of time around angry men with guns, pointing them at each other. I was afraid in Kingwood in a way that I wasn't afraid when I've had guns fired at me. Which may help explain why Danielle Walker's security team recommended that she wear a bulletproof vest that day. Those who was there as security told me that I should put it on. The BLM rally in Kingwood was organized by a local Black resident. As word got out, people from around the area posted on Facebook that they would show up to protect the town from the BLM protest. It was a tense day filled with hateful talk, raging anger, and lots of guns. It was a day that defined some of this country's racial divide. So I am Delegate Danielle Walker from West Virginia, representing District 51, Montegoya County. I am the only woman of color, the only black woman, serving with 99 other delegates, along with two other black males. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New Iberia, Louisiana. I am a true Southern belle. <laughs> and, and how did growing up in the South inform your values and your priorities as an adult? How oh, the Jim Crow South. You had to know exactly who you were, what your place was. You needed to understand your three strikes growing up. Number one, you're black. Number two, you're a female. And number three, baby, I'm sorry, but we are poor. That was taught to me instantly, along with my ABCs and my one, two, threes. The Jim Crow South took hold just after the Civil War. While the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, new state and local laws legalized racial discrimination and segregation. Many of those laws were in place up until the 1960s and 70s. And some of those practices continue today. Daniel Walker and her family made West Virginia home 10 years ago. Her ex-husband worked in the oil and gas industry. Then Walker was recruited for a new challenge, to run for House of Delegates in 2018. And she won. What was it like showing up to that first day as a delegate for your district? I didn't even know how to get in a building. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, y'all. I had only been to the Capitol one time before with... Uh, mom's clean air force to speak in front of a Senate committee, you know, meeting. I knew where to park on the other side, being a visitor. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know that I had the privilege of not placing my items, Social Security, to go through them. Where were you when you first heard the news about George Floyd's death? Oh, my gosh. I immediately called my oldest son, and just the silence amongst the three of us was deadly. That was West Virginia Delegate Danielle Walker speaking with us and them host Trey Kay. The award-winning episode is titled Kingwood March Exposed a Raw Seam of Rage. To hear it, download it at your favorite podcast app or stream it at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is presented with support from the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. 
Shell's massive petrochemical project near Pittsburgh is nearly complete. The ethane cracker plant has been hailed by elected officials and business leaders as a way to reverse years of population loss and economic decline. For State Impact Pennsylvania, the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports that for some people, it's just the opposite. It's a reason to leave. Cheryl and Luke Hardy moved to Beaver County exactly 10 years ago. I was coming from um, Albany, New York, where I was in, in graduate school, and uh, you were... Yeah, I, I lived in uh, Washington, D.C. The location was halfway between their jobs, Luke's in Ohio and Cheryl's in the Pittsburgh suburbs. They eventually bought a house in Beaver, an attractive town along the Ohio River with historic houses and a walkable business district. They always had events and festivals, and the restaurants were great, um, are great. They walked to playgrounds with their two young children and dreamed of even walking them to elementary school, like in some 1950s TV show. They barely noticed in 2016 when Shell announced it was building a multi-billion dollar plastics plant across the Ohio River. But it became harder to ignore every time they drove their kids to and from daycare. Every day, twice a day, we had to drive past it, right? And... You could see just incrementally the, the, the project developing. And, and so that, I think that evidence for me was seeing it and seeing it just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. One night as he was tucking his children into bed, Luke Hardy saw something new out of the window, a recently finished tower at the plant. The more they learned about the cracker, especially its ability to emit millions of pounds of air pollution a year, the less they liked the idea of living close by. So last year, they left Beaver County and bought a house 15 miles away in Moon Township near the Pittsburgh International Airport. Being like in eyesight or across from it in the event of an explosion or some, you know, something that would have happened accidentally and our kids, like, it just scared us. It's hard to know how many people the cracker will drive away, as it did the Hardys. County leaders say they're not worried about any kind of exodus. And census numbers showed an uptick in population while the plant was under construction, followed by a population decline after 2020. But the Hardys are not alone. They know three other couples considering leaving. Among these are Matt Stewart and Jackie Shock Stewart. They live in Brighton Township, about five miles from the plant. While the couple's three young children play on their back deck, Matt Stewart admires the thick green woods behind his property, where he's built trails leading down the steep hillside. I feel strongly that western Pennsylvania is such a beautiful place. Like, this landscape is, I mean, it's amazing. And I have a very, like, neurotically deep connection to our land. He understands people need to work. And the cracker has brought thousands of construction jobs to Beaver County. When it's completed, it will employ 600 permanent workers. But as he's watched the cracker rise, with essentially unanimous support from local politicians and many in the community, it's soured him to living in Beaver County. And so that's kind of why I'm like, I don't know if I want to be here, because it's just not part of the culture, respecting the land. For Jackie Shock Stewart, her fears are more personal. She's poured over research and news reports about the plant, including warnings from environmental groups about air pollution. I know we looked at projection, maps projecting... Um, particularly risky areas with air quality at the elementary school is right in right in there, the high-risk area. Our, our children are going to be spending eight hours a day in the highest-risk area. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection maintains the cracker won't push the region's air quality over federal pollution limits. Shell has agreed to monitor air quality around the plant and says in written materials it's following all state and federal laws. Still, the couple has decided to leave heading west to Ohio, where Matt recently accepted a job in his hometown. They know not everyone in Beaver County can do the same. I kind of feel for those people that this is home, and they can't easily move. They don't want to have to move. David Walker spent much of his life in Beaver County, where both of his parents are from. He says he wanted to stay here and hoped his children would have opportunities for advancement in high-tech fields like technology or medicine. Instead, he said, the county is trying to recapture something from its past. This shell plant is simply a repeat of what we saw in the 70s in the industry, uh, in the steel mills. And I grew up with a family that worked in the steel mills. So I didn't want to see my kids go down this direction. 
Last year, Walker and his family moved to the Raleigh, North Carolina area, where he works in tech. Apple is building a billion-dollar campus there with plans to employ 3,000 skilled workers. Looking at where, uh, say, North Carolina and this county is going and their plans for directions in, uh, in medical, uh, biotech, uh, and technology, uh, that gives us more opportunity down here. Back at the Hardy's house near the airport, Luke shows off their new deck. I, we do like it back here, It, despite having uh, air traffic um, overhead sometimes, which is actually kind of cool. Um, you know, it's quiet in the backyard, and, and, and we, we like the deck. This was a nice it's thing. It's great for the kids. Yeah. It's much more private than the front porch in Beaver, where neighbors dropped by and sometimes had long conversations. Luke says he misses the old house, misses being able to walk to a store, and misses his neighbors. We would have lived in Beaver. Um, you know, the kids would have gone to school there. I don't think we would have even had a conversation about moving because there wouldn't have been any reason to. The Hardys say they hope they're wrong about the ethane cracker. They hope it'll be safe for those nearby. But they aren't willing to bet their future or their children's on that hope. Reed Frazier, State Impact, Pennsylvania. When the coal industry was strong, so were towns like Blackie, Kentucky. But last month, the town dissolved with the bang of a gavel. Officials say the move will pave the way for better services. And residents say the community is more than just a legal structure. Katie Myers with the Ohio Valley Resource has more. On her second-story porch above a closed-up health clinic, Denise Bates is trying to explain her town's financial situation to her little grandkids, John and Ivy. What do you think about the Blackie Park? I don't, I don't want it to be not a place anymore. It's still going to be a place. It's not going to not be a place. Blackie's been in a tough spot lately, but seven-year-old John thinks he might just have a fix. I'm getting $100. But even with John Fletcher's generous $100 donation, there's no one to take it. The mayor stepped down in 2009 along with the city council. Though the community's still active, legally, it's defunct. Blackie, Kentucky, oh Lord, how I miss you. Blackie is a little town with a big cultural footprint. Dolly Parton wrote a song about it, and parts of Loretta Lynn's biopic, Coal Miner's Daughter, were filmed here. But the population never cracked 600, and is under 100 now. For a long time, the once bustling coal camp town had what it needed. From Denise Bates' porch, you can see it all. A street that runs up into the mountains, houses, a library, a bridge over the creek, and a railroad that connects Blackie to the rest of the world. And they could take a train to Lexington or, you know, wherever they wanted to go. They could take a train from Blackie. But as coal cooled down, so did Blackie. The schools were consolidated to the county seat, Whitesburg. People moved away. Businesses slowly dried up. The problem came to a head during the pandemic, when federal relief money was getting distributed to local governments. Most cities jumped at it, but some places, like Blackie, just couldn't. Here's J.D. Cheney with the Kentucky League of Cities. We started getting a lot of non-responses on that as we were working with the Department for Local Government. How many of these cities aren't going to take free money. When no one in Blackie could accept the relief money, Letcher County turned to their state representative, Angie Hatton, for legal advice. At that point, we realized that if we don't dissolve the city, then repairs to city streets in Blackie can't get done because they're city streets and there's no city government. The roads in Blackie hadn't been fixed properly for over a decade, and money was waiting right there, just out of reach. In Cheney's view, Blackie could no longer fulfill the social contract. I'll just keep emphasizing that, what the essence of cities are, and that they exist to provide services and programs that designed to enhance the quality of life. The Kentucky legislature passed a law earlier this year making it easier for cities to dissolve. Cheney says about 8 to 12 cities in Kentucky, including nearby Vico, could face a similar choice. County officials held a comment period and a few public meetings, and then on June 30th, in five minutes of a county meeting, Blackie, on paper, ceased to exist. Angie Hatton hopes dissolving Blackie, the legal entity, can save Blackie, the community. The ones of us who are left are, you know, the ones who are determined to save it and just not let this place we love dry up and blow away. Blackie isn't some dead town stuck in a black and white photograph. There's an annual festival and a park and neighbors who give each other eggs from their chickens. 
and at least a couple of the very youngest residents say it's still their home and they're happy to be here. Look over there. Is that only a blackie cloud? Yeah. <laughs> they think this is the, the best place on Guess earth. What? For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers. In my hometown of Blackie, Kentucky, he came passing through one dark, gloomy day. And I considered myself as lucky when he told me he would take me away. And though he was older, it made me no difference. His promise of riches was all I could see. At last I could leave the coal mines of Kentucky and know something better than sad poverty. Blackie, Kentucky, you know that I miss you. But there are other places in the world I'd like to see So I must take this chance to be something more than nothing But I'll always hold you in my memory Whether it's at the gas pump or at the grocery store, people all over the country have been feeling the pinch of recent inflation, particularly in parts of rural Appalachia, where it takes more gas just to get to groceries. Scott Chu is an economics professor at West Virginia University. Reporter Chris Schultz sat down with Chu to better understand these higher prices and how they might come down again. Can you start us off by just telling us what exactly inflation is? Sure. It's a general rate of increase of the average price level in the entire macroeconomy. So it takes into account prices of all final goods, goods that go to consumers. We look at the the average price level for the whole economy, and we then calculate the growth rate of that average price level, taking into account all goods and services. And uh, that rate of growth of that price level is inflation. Because the price indices jump around month to month, we typically look at the rate of growth over 12 months. So when they say it's 9% inflation, it's roughly 9% increase in goods and services prices over the past 12 months. That, that kind of leads me into my next question, which is why is inflation so high right now? So there are two schools of thoughts. One is that Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, meaning that when the rate of growth of money increases, the rate of growth of of prices increases about the same. A second hypothesis about inflation is that it's related to the degree of utilization of resources in the economy. So, for example, how close are we to full employment? How close are we to the potential output level in the economy? What's interesting about our recent episode, however, is that we've seen an unusually large rate of growth of money in a very short period of time. From 2020 to 2022, the the stock of money grew about 40%. That is off the charts high. To people who favor the monetary hypothesis for inflation, they point directly to that and say, yeah, maybe 5% or 7% or 9% growth of money wouldn't have caused high inflation, but 40% is going to always, and it's not going to take very long for that to happen. In my opinion, there I think the evidence is a little little bit stronger right now that it's the monetary growth that's causing the inflation. That said, there are also complications going on at the same time about things that people call the supply chain. But that whole process of production has different prices along the way. And so while we don't think of those as inflation, they can, if that supply chain gets out of whack, which it seems to be in many places, uh, that can cause the relative prices of different stages of production to go up or down. And right now, we're seeing the pass-through of that to final goods inflation as well. So that's a complicating factor, and it's very hard to pinpoint exactly how much is monetary, how much is that supply chain. I think the question that everybody who might be listening to this is going to have is, how does COVID factor into this? Mm. Well, COVID was by far the largest decline in output and the shortest period of decline in output that we've seen perhaps ever, but certainly in the modern post-World War II era, even more so than during the financial crisis. But it rebounded with basically within two quarters, which is a, an unheard of rate of return to to high levels of growth. The, the health crisis caused us to have to reduce production, and so people just couldn't go back to work. Well, that's an issue that we think of in, in macroeconomics as one of potential output. Normally, potential output is fixed there 
and it stays steady for a long period of time. It doesn't fluctuate. Unfortunately, in my opinion, monetary and fiscal policy treated this as if it was a demand shock. And they said, well, output's going down, so incomes are going down, so we should give people more income and wealth. So there were a lot of fiscal transfers. There was monetary stimulus to reduce the interest rate. And what that caused people to do is want to buy more. That's normally what happens with monetary and fiscal policy when it tries to combat a recession. The problem in this case is we couldn't produce more. So everything sort of fell apart at once, but the real problem was people had plenty of income and wealth from the stimulus, but they couldn't buy or get the goods that they wanted. And so we had, as usual, too much money chasing too few goods, and that causes inflation. The big question is, and and this is what you and your colleagues have been looking at, is how this is going to impact different people differently. Sure. What have you seen in your your research and in your study um, about the different impact of this situation? Yeah. The classic mechanism by which inflation affects the economy is on on the side of households and consumers is it affects people who have a lot of money, who are holding, not not people who are wealthy or rich, but people who hold a lot of their assets in what we call money, like cash, checking accounts, um, even savings accounts. The number one thing inflation does is it causes interest rates to rise. You need to keep up with inflation, otherwise the real value of that money is going to decline. Their balances are going to devalue in real terms because the price level is going up. What they have in their bank account won't buy as much tomorrow. So this is called the inflation tax on money, and it's very hard for many people, particularly lower-income people and people who don't have uh, skills or or the taste for investing in in, uh, more risky assets. They lose value during inflation, and that's a big hit on on their wealth. At the same time, Uh, inflation tends to hit certain types of prices like food and energy, as it's doing now, that are essential items that people can't substitute away from. So when those prices go up, that hits directly into people's budgets. They can't shift to something else as easily. And so people uh, with lower incomes and lower wealth are going to be disproportionately harmed by the inflation because it hits what we call inelastic goods that they have to buy and that they have to swallow the, the price increases. So it's a big it's a big hardship on them. Does that disproportionate impact also carry over into the business sector for smaller businesses, say? Well, certainly for businesses that maybe say are, you know, uh, sole proprietorships or home businesses or smaller things, they, they actually have a lot of characteristics that are similar to typical households. But by and large, um, business firms don't have that problem in part because they manage their their assets better. Uh, they have people on staff that can do that. So they're more inclined to be invested in things that would earn a higher return than cash. They would not hold on to cash in an inflationary environment. What really hurts the businesses with regards to inflation is uh, the difficulty with understanding whether the overall rate of inflation is directly related to their business. So they have to determine, is is my price going up because of inflation or is price going up because the relative de- demand for my product is going up? And if they can't discern that correctly, they may expand output too much and then crash more later. So, and then one last thing is uh, because of the supply chain, the issues coming overseas, they have to be able to forecast how much are my inputs going to increase and so how much can I con- you know reasonably commit to produce in light of that uncertainty, how long will the product get here? And so that that sense of uncertainty, which is caused by the particularly the supply chain oriented uh, contributions to inflation, uh, are very difficult for firms of all types to manage. This level of inflation that we're currently seeing, nine percent, how does that end? When does it end? Well, um, most of the time, inflations end through one of two things or both. One is a, a contraction of the monetary money supply. That's beginning. The Federal Reserve is starting to raise interest rates, and the way they're going to do that is by reducing the amount of money supplied to the economy. The Fed contracting the money supply has all, virtually always ended in lower inflation. The history of the Fed has been that it typically raises rates too late and often a little too much so that there ends up being a recession. So the second force that brings down inflation is a contraction in output. And so this is both the monetary and the uh, utilization theories of inflation playing together and building one off the other. So as the money supply contracts, interest rates go up, but then because interest rates are higher, people start buying fewer cars, fewer homes, and they start worrying, and then we have a recession, and then demand declines below potential, 
output, and then we have uh, additional downward pressure on prices. So it's a monetary contraction followed by a decline in in output, usually a recession, that will bring uh, bring inflation down. So one thing that's really important is to make sure you keep abreast of what's actually happening. You know, keeping an eye on that inflation rate and trying to manage your your financial resources around that. For example, uh, the Treasury Department recently um, launched uh, a new type of bond that is ideal for households. It's a savings bond, similar to what other people have used, but it pays interest based on the rate of inflation. So that might be something that people might want to check out and see to help uh, guard against uh, the the issues of um, of the inflation tax that we talked about before. Um, anytime. We're on the border of an of a recession. There's a concern that the probability of becoming unemployed is rising. Bearing in mind as you plan your expenditures uh, and your saving uh, and your investments that that that's a possibility may may lead some people to maybe increase the amount that they save during this period of time in case uh, in case they become unemployed for for a season. That was Scott Shu, economics professor at West Virginia University, speaking with WVPB's Chris Schultz. Thanks for listening to Inside Appalachia. It's been a great first 20 years, and we're just getting started. We can't wait to see what the next 20 years has in store. Thanks for joining us again as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tyler Childers, Del McCurry, Dolly Parton, Michael Howard, and Robin Kessinger. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. And if you're still on Instagram, come check out Inside Appalachia's new page. We're at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.